welcome to Veritas True Crime Re-Recorded, part of our re-upload series, hosted by Jesse Veritas. Hi everyone, and welcome to Veritas True Crime Podcast. This episode was originally released in January of 2022, which is National Stalking Awareness Month in the United States. It should actually be an international month of learning and recognition. The purpose of National Stalking Awareness Month is to encourage you to learn more about the prevalent, dangerous and often misunderstood crime of stalking. Our story doesn't have a whole lot of mystery involved. We know right away who the killer is, but this story reads out like fiction. It's hard to believe that some of the facts we learn along the way. The significance of this story is that Lauren Giddings was a victim of stalking. Her stalker was obsessed with her. He spied on her and absolutely creeped her out. The stories of victims of stalking, although not as popular in my opinion, definitely deserve a place in true crime podcasts and I hope that you'll stick with me through the episode. There's a quick content warning. There's graphic depictions of murder, dismemberment, stalking and very strong language. If you might be affected, please check the show notes for more information. Firstly, here are some important statistics. Stalking is a crime that in Australia affects 1 in 10 people and no surprise, women make up 75% of stalking victims. In the United States, more than 1 million women and 370,990 men are the victims of a stalker. With that, anyone could be the victim of stalking. It is so prevalent that statistics estimate around 8% of women and 2% of men in the United States alone have been stalked at some time or other in their life. The majority of people who report that they're being stalked often know the person who is stalking them. Quite often, it's either an ex-partner or somebody that they work with. It's important to remember that if someone's behavior is making you feel unsafe, scared or uncomfortable, it's not okay. Even if that person is an ex-partner, an ex-friend, a work colleague, or even a family member, you have the right to seek help. You have the right to be safe and to be free from harassment. There are a number of organizations out there that are able and willing to help you. The most important thing for you to remember is you should always seek out help and support as soon as possible. Don't let things escalate. Take every reasonable step that you can to make yourself safe and secure. Stalking is a method that is used by someone who's trying to exert power over you. They are trying to control you, or they're usually trying to punish you, especially true if the person that's making you feel unsafe is an ex-partner and you left the relationship or someone that you've rejected. So what is stalking exactly? The Office on Violence Against Women at the Department of Justice defines stalking as engaging in a course of conduct directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to fear for their safety or the safety of others or suffer substantial emotional distress. Stalking is where someone is repeatedly calling you, following you, harassing you or spying on you and causing you fear, anxiety and stress. They don't have to mean it. It's about what you feel. Sometimes stalkers make threats to, and they may harass family members, pets, children, or other work colleagues. 
These days, stalking doesn't have to be occurring physically. It is also possible to be the victim of cyber stalking. This is where the stalker uses the internet or social media sites to harass you, as well as use your phone, iPad, computer, or even CCTV. It's common, especially for women, to blame themselves for being the victim of stalking. I don't know who needs to hear it, but I hope that you hear me when I tell you, you are never to blame for someone else's actions. If you are currently the victim of a stalker, seek out support. I'll post some really handy links on the show's website for this episode. You have the right to live free from fear and anxiety caused by some dickhead who won't leave you alone. You have my support, and I'm sure you have the support of many others. It's important to know, in Australia, stalking is a crime. Stalking was made a criminal offence in England and Wales in 2012, and in the USA. Although the elements required to constitute stalking are varied, the federal government and all 50 states have enacted laws that have made stalking a criminal act. Lauren Giddings was born April 18, 1984, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, to Karen and William, or Bill, Giddings. She had two sisters, Caitlin and Sarah, and a Pekingese poodle named Butterbean. She liked field hockey and softball, and she grew up and went to Catholic school in Laurel, Maryland, until eighth grade, and then she went to Athelton High School in Columbia. She was a member of St. Mary of the Mills Catholic Church in Laurel. In 2002, Lauren moved to Georgia to attend Agnes Scott College, where she studied and graduated with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. She moved home to Maryland in 2006 after graduation, and she started to work for the National Center for Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Later, she decided to pursue a career in law. Her dream was to work as a public defender so that she could help people. She applied for and was accepted to Mercer University's Walter F. George School of Law and again moved to Georgia in 2008. For those other true crime nerds who are thinking that the name of this school sounds familiar, the spectacular Nancy Grace attended and got her JD there. In 2002, Lauren moved to Georgia to attend Agnes Scott College where she studied and graduated with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. She moved home to Maryland in 2006 after graduation and started working for the National Center for Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Later, she pursued a career in law. Her dream was to work as a public defender so that she could help people. She applied for and was accepted to Mercer University's Walter F. George School of Law and again moved to Georgia in 2008. For those other true crime nerds who are thinking, hey, the name of this school sounds familiar, absolutely. The spectacular Nancy Grace attended and got her JD there. While she was a student, Lauren served as president of the Federalist Society. According to Wikipedia, this is an organization of conservatives and libertarians that advocate for a, te a textualist and originalist interpretation of the United States Constitution. Lauren was excited to be elected president, but had said to her boyfriend David at the time, my creepy neighbor was elected vice president. Lauren Giddings had recently graduated on May 14, 2011 from law school at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia with a Juris Doctorate, a JD. Instead of moving back home to Maryland, she decided that she was going to stay in Georgia and she would move in to live with her boyfriend, David. A career in criminal law was before her with only one last hurdle, the Georgia bar exam. She was known by her friends and colleagues and classmates as being social, athletic, 
friendly and outgoing. When asked why Lauren had decided to head south to go to college, her best friend Katie O'Hare said that she was a country girl at heart and she loved the south. One of her law schoolmates, Stephen Mark McDaniel, born 1986 in Lilburn, Georgia, had taken an interest in her and asked her out on a date a few times. She rejected him and she was actually in a relationship with David Vandiver, a man who was 20 years her senior. He was the complete opposite of Lauren, where he seemed to enjoy time alone and stay inside his apartment, rarely leaving, playing video games, watching pornography and admiring his guns and swords. Stephen was a doomsday prepper. He was socially awkward, a bit of an outcast, antisocial, and had withdrawn mannerisms. He was very smart, according to people who knew him. Although they knew about each other, they had very little to do with each other. McDaniel, however, became obsessed with Lauren. She had described him to her boyfriend as creepy, weird, and a social recluse, though she'd never said so to his face. Lauren and McDaniel were not friends. David said in a 2016 interview that Lauren had most probably treated McDaniel with more respect than he'd ever received in his life from anyone, but also that she had no desire to socialize with him. Lauren never mentioned that she was afraid of McDaniel, just that she wasn't interested. Lauren and some friends had arranged a celebration together on June 24th. The group met and had drinks and ended up back at Ashley Morehouse's apartment where Lauren's ex, Joe, also lived. Lauren spent the night at her friend's place. In fact, she spent the night in Joe's room. It's completely unknown what happened in his room. At some point, however, during the evening, Lauren had mentioned to her friends or to Joe that she believed that someone was stalking her. Her friends thought that she was being a bit dramatic. Lauren had plenty of male admirers. Lauren chose during the celebration to explain to her friends why she believed that someone had been breaking into her apartment and her things had been touched and moved. This happened on more than one occasion and she told her friends about an instance from about a year before where she'd come home and items had been moved around inside her apartment. On this night, Lauren had gone to the Healy Country Club about 10 miles from her apartment in Macon. She'd spent most of the day relaxing at the pool. We know that there was a charge at 5.49 p.m. at the Zaxby's drive-through on her way home. This, however, was the last time anyone saw her. Lauren would later be attacked and murdered in her own home in the early hours of June 26th. Unfortunately, it was several days before anyone reported Lauren missing. Lauren had told her family and friends that she would be studying non-stop for a while in order to get ready for the bar exam. It was only after one of her friends had called Caitlin, Lauren's sister, to let her know that she hadn't been able to get in touch with Lauren that family and friends started to worry. Lauren's family asked Ashley and her boyfriend to attend the apartment to see if they were able to find her. Ashley had a spare key, so of course she was happy to go. This was June 30th. Ashley was interviewed by Dateline's Keith Morrison, and she told him that she had a bad feeling before they went inside the apartment. So much so that Ashley turned to her boyfriend and asked him if he was prepared to see whatever it was they may find inside before they walked in. He agreed, so they turned the key, entered the apartment. Inside, it looked like Lauren had started to pack her belongings. She was supposed to be moving to David's place about an hour away, but she hadn't finished. Her study books, keys and purse were all there on the table, except where was Lauren? 
Ashley and her boyfriend decided to wait around in Lauren's apartment. They actually figured that she might be out for a run and would be coming back soon. Her car was parked outside, so obviously she hadn't gone far. When Lauren didn't return after several hours of waiting, Ashley called Lauren's parents in Maryland and explained what they had found in the apartment. Lauren's dad decided that he would drive the 11 hours to the apartment and start a search for her. Police were called around 12.52 a.m. and Lauren was reported as a missing person. Immediately, people began searching for her. Her beloved pooch, Butterbean, was staying with family in Maryland, in case anybody was wondering. Lauren had recently been there for her sister's wedding. In fact, her sister and new husband were on their honeymoon while all of this was happening. At around 1 o'clock a.m., two Macon police officers, David Descoteau and Doug Copeland, arrived at Lauren's apartment. They observed that there were no signs of a struggle inside, and during a brief investigation, noticed that it didn't seem as though anything had been stolen or was missing. Although the fact that Lauren had left her phone, purse, computer, and other personal items, it seemed unusual for someone to leave if they had gone away. The officers contacted a detective who asked them to write a report, which could be forwarded to the detective bureau for follow-up in the morning, and then to leave the premises, which they did. Detective Patterson and crime scene investigators with other detectives returned to Lauren's apartment at 9am to begin an investigation. When investigators were unable to find anything inside the apartment, they decided to widen the search for clues to the immediate area around. Outside, one of the detectives told the producers of the show In Ice Cold Blood on Oxygen that the wind direction changed at that very moment and they were hit with a very familiar smell. By following that smell of death, the detectives were led to an area where the trash was kept ready for weekly collection on the side of the apartments. They said that it has a very distinctive smell, so they had a good feeling that they were going to find a body. Interestingly, it was garbage collection day that day. When the police had arrived, they'd parked where they could because there were no parking spaces, and this happened to be blocking the garbage bins. So when the garbage truck actually rolled down the street ready to collect the trash cans, the driver saw that he wasn't able to access the bins, so he gave a smile and a wave to the detectives standing by their cars and continued driving without collecting from the apartments. This story could have had a completely different outcome had the driver of the garbage truck been able to collect those bins. Bibbs County Sheriff Lieutenant Randy Gonzalez opened the bin and two large black bags were inside. The first bag was just trash. However, Randy said that the second bag was, was much heavier and he was certain that he was going to find human remains inside. Indeed, inside the bag was the torso of a white female. It weighed 92 pounds or 41 kilos. There were no other limbs attached. It was about 9.40 a.m. They searched through the other bins and were unable to find the head, the arms or legs, so initially they were unable to identify that the torso actually belonged to Lauren Giddings. I think it's safe to say though that they probably had a very good idea. Randy further said that he had never seen anything like this before and only a true monster could have done it. Now, you're probably thinking, weren't David and Joe suspects? Yes, absolutely, especially Joe because he was the last person to have ever seen Lauren when she left his apartment in the morning after their celebration together. Lauren's friends recalled that they hadn't seen her leave, 
Joe had only told them that she'd left early. Many of the friends said that they had suspected Joe may have had something to do with Lauren's disappearance, and they later expressed their guilt at having suspected him. But of course, it wasn't a good look for Joe, though he participated fully in the police investigation. He had told them that when Lauren left in the morning, she told him he was going to the pool. When investigators pulled Lauren's financial records, they saw that she had paid admission to the Healy Country Club swimming pool that very morning, just as Joe had said. When searching her car, they found the receipt for the Zaxby's drive through and when analyzing Lauren's computer, the police found an email that Lauren had sent to David where Lauren had said that she felt uneasy and expressed concerns that she thought someone may have been trying to break into her apartment while she had been away the night before. David was also participating with the detectives in the investigation, and on the night in question, he had been away on a golfing trip in California. Although investigators found it strange that they hadn't spoken for an extended period of time, David was able to provide proof that he wasn't in Georgia at the time of Lauren's disappearance. Both men were eventually ruled out as suspects. Earlier in the morning, police had been knocking on the doors of neighbors' apartments and Stephen McDaniel had been interviewed twice. Unaware that any remains had been found, McDaniel and Lauren's other friends attended Macon Police Station to make recorded statements. During his interview, the police asked McDaniel for permission to search his apartment, which at first he denied. His excuse? He said that inside his apartment were firearms and swords and he didn't want people anywhere near them. Suspicions started to grow about McDaniel. Again, they asked for permission to have a look through his apartment and finally he agreed after he was told that everybody else had given permission and they were just wanting to look at his. Everybody wanted to search for the missing woman and this was starting to look bad. Just before ending the interview, Detective Patterson asked Stephen McDaniel to stand up and lift his shirt. He wanted to check for marks on his body. McDaniel complied. He had two red scratches on the right-hand side of his abdomen. He was unable to tell the detectives how he'd gotten them. He told them that he had no idea of when or how he received the scratches. Detective Patterson, who was unconvinced, told him that they looked like fingernail scratches and took photos. This came up later when he was brought into the station that evening for further interrogation. With the initial interview concluded, Detective Patterson took Stephen back to Barrister's Hall Apartments where they lived, and he was met by a district attorney's investigator and two assistant district attorneys to conduct a walkthrough of McDaniel's apartment under the guise that they were looking for Lauren. Around five hours after finding the torso, cadaver dogs Cinco and Chance were brought to the apartment complex by handler Tracy Sargent. Around 2.15 p.m., Tracy, Cinco, and Chance began a walk around the apartments and it was reported that the dogs gave alerts, signs that they had found what they were looking for. This happened on several different occasions. In particular, in Lauren's apartment, at the front door, in the bathroom, inside a vacant apartment downstairs from Lauren's apartment, and in the bathroom, living room of Stephen's apartments, both in the bedroom and the bathroom. Finally, twice more, once at the door to and inside the laundry room shared by all of the apartments. Stephen's defense team later argued that this was inadmissible because it wasn't captured on camera and the use of these dogs failed to meet the test for admissible expert testimony. 
Until this point, McDaniel was still completely unaware that the torso had been found. It's easy to imagine that actually he was probably feeling like he was home free. He knew that the trash was going to be collected that day. The police may have been suspicious of him, but until now, he didn't know anything had been found and he was sure that they wouldn't. Around 2pm is where this story takes a pretty weird twist. After the initial search of his apartment, the detective told Stephen that they couldn't release his apartment back to him and he needed to leave. When he left, he was headed in the direction of the law school across the street when he encountered the media journalists. McDaniel agreed to be interviewed for one of the local news channel crews from WGXA TV. They were hanging around on site wanting to talk to people. There are a number of opinions circulating about his appearance. In particular, many people said that he was looking disheveled and unkempt and had quote unquote crazy eyes. He absolutely did. But do we think that only because we know what he did? The interview starts off without incident. He plays the part of a of a worried friend very well. He's in a very chatty mood, talking about everything. The strangest part is all of the information that he knows about Lauren. People who don't know any better would assume that they were really close friends. For someone who wasn't her friend, and as we know, they didn't have much to do with each other, he was extremely knowledgeable about Lauren, her movements, and recounted stories for the news crew like he'd lived them with her. At one point, he suggested that Lauren may have been out on a run and had been abducted. The interviewer asked a few leading questions, wanting to get their edits for the evening news, and he kept repeating, quote, we don't know where she is, end quote. Going on to say how he and her friends had attended the apartment to see if anything was amiss and said, the door was locked when we got here. We just don't know where she is. Obviously, his concern was an act because he knew exactly where Lauren was the entire time. He wasn't actually concerned about Lauren. The decision had been made earlier by law enforcement not to release the fact that the torso or anything for that matter had been found. They wanted to wait until they had a positive ID for the body. Unfortunately, keeping it under wraps wasn't to be. The news crews had heard about it somehow, and this was how the news was broken to the world, including Lauren's family. It was Lauren's uncle who first heard about the body being found by watching news reports that evening, and he called her family to ask how they were. The family, of course, hadn't been told anything about the body being found in Lauren's apartment complex at this stage. Then, however, the report says, I think they recovered, the reporter, sorry, I think they recovered the body in the parking lot area, asking Stephen McDaniel if he knew anything about it. There's a very visual moment where McDaniel appears to think to himself, oh fuck. He swallows hard and his face looks like his stomach literally just fell to his ankles. His face turns visibly white and he's shaken by the revelation. And then he asks, a body? Like maybe he's misunderstood what they've said to him. The news crews keep asking questions, but McDaniel puts on the performance of a lifetime saying that he needs to sit down. He's acting as though he's had the rug pulled out from under him and he's distraught to learn that Lauren may be dead. Oh my God. You guys need to check out the video. It's infuriating to watch him thinking that he's fooling everybody. There is um, a video on the Veritas true crime Facebook page. It's from our friends at Across the Table on YouTube. 
The video is around 11, mil- 11 minutes long, and it's all of the interviews that Stephen McDaniels gave for the media that afternoon. In a police report, one of the officers wrote that he was completely unresponsive after he'd gone to sit down. He was staring off into space, and they they had to perform what was called a sternal rub. This is one of the most common painful stimuli that's used by EMTs when patients are not responding to verbal stimuli. Upon hearing the news of the body discovery, Mr. Giddings, Lauren's father, who was now in Georgia, rushed to the Macon police station. He was told by investigators, though, that he shouldn't see her body like this, insisting that this wasn't how he wanted to remember his daughter. DNA testing later confirmed that the torso that was found was that of Lauren, without Mr. Giddings needing to go through the ordeal. After his media interviews, Stephen went back to his apartment, still in shock. Detective Patterson was there still and asked Stephen to sign a form that would give them consent to search the apartment further. Stephen didn't respond to Patterson and he didn't sign the form. From there, he was placed in the mobile command center, which was a vehicle set up at the apartment complex for the police. Detective Patterson used this opportunity to return to the detective bureau to complete the interviews of Lauren's friends. Based on the alerts given by Cinco and Chance, he requested a search warrant for Stephen's apartment. The wording of the purpose for the warrant was to, quote, search and seize blood, blood spatter, body parts, body tissue and fluids, knives, cutting implements, instruments capable of dismembering a human body, cleaning and laundry supplies, garbage bags, paint and painting tools, which are evidence of the crime of murder. The warrant was issued at 8.42pm and was executed at 11pm. Within hours, Detective Patterson applied for another search warrant for Stephen's apartment and yet another for his vehicle, which was a 1997 Geo Prison. This was issued at 1.55am on July 1st and executed at 3am the same morning, and then another one at 12.39pm on July 3rd. The fourth search warrant was for the collection of hair samples, saliva, fingernail clippings, and to take full body photographs of Stephen McDaniel. They did execute this warrant at 3.15am. There's more to this part of the story, but let's just go back to Lauren's apartment first. At 6pm, the crime scene investigators had conducted a luminol examination inside Lauren's apartment. Luminol is used to detect blood at crime scenes under blacklight. You've probably seen it uh, on CSI. The examination revealed substantial amounts of blood around the drain of the bathtub and spatters of blood on the wall and around four feet above the tub. Detective Patterson returned to the apartments and gave the search warrant to the sergeant from the crime lab. He and other uh, five other officers searched inside. This is Stephen Stephen's apartment. There were weapons everywhere. They made note of an AK semi-automatic rifle, a samurai sword, several large knives and a couple of handguns, including a large cooler which was by the front door. Patterson thought was worthy of noting. Investigators also found two keys inside Stephen's apartment. One of them was a master key that opened every door in the apartment complex. The other was the key to Lauren's apartment. Stephen was not authorized to be in possession of either of them. Detective Patterson decided that they needed to speak to McDaniels some more, and he was interviewed further later that evening until the early hours. 
There is a video of the interview posted online in full. It is two hours of the interrogation. And for the entire time, Stephen's odd behavior is out of this world. He sat in his chair, straight backed, with his palms flat on the table, moving only his head now and then. There's a period of the video where Stephen sits for 16 minutes and doesn't move. I mean, he's completely still. It's also on YouTube. Just look up Stephen McDaniel. McDaniels never requested an attorney the entire time. After seeing Stephen being so willing to chat and talk about Lauren earlier on the news, it's a contrasting view of him later that night in the police station. Detective Patterson made a point of this very early on in the interview. He was just giving one-word answers, completely disconnected and bizarre. The detective continues to ask questions of Stephen, and eventually Stephen moves from this monosyllabic, closed answers to giving a few more words, but he speaks like he's someone in a trance or under hypnosis. The answers that he's giving were mostly yes, no, I don't know, or I don't understand. All very monotone, not changing the tone of his voice at all. I think it was an act. Even Detective Patterson makes mention of the fact that earlier in the day, he and Stephen had sat there talking to each other like they were friends. He was normal. He was fine. And now he was shut down and acting like something was wrong. He asked him point blank, are you scared? To which Stephen answered, he wasn't. The detectives asked Stephen if over the weekend he had gone to the Kroger supermarket or to the Walmart. Stephen said that he couldn't remember. He didn't know. He was asking because after he had appeared on the evening news, a checkout operator from Walmart had called the police tip line and said that she had remembered the quote, crazy looking man from the TV, end quote. That he had checked out at her register two days before Lauren was murdered. The cashier recalled that McDaniel had been there with another man, who she recalled was moody and the pair had bought a tarp, some rope and hacksaw blades. She specifically asked if he was doing home renovation projects and the man refused to answer, walking off, and McDaniel went with him. The investigators took the tip seriously, however by then Daniel had already been on the news in the news cycle on TV for days. People were seeing the clips regularly, especially his theatrics with collapsing and sobbing on TV. Still, detectives reviewed the security footage from uh, June 23rd where the cashier believed that she'd seen McDaniel and his friend. Unfortunately, it wasn't him. Although the tip from the cashier turned out to be incorrect, police did see that McDaniel had indeed attended that very Walmart five hours after the reported sighting. So there he did buy rope, two ponchos, a flash drive and Sour Patch candy. I feel that it's necessary to mention here that Barrister's Hall apartments have cameras installed. However, they are fake. The AT&T building beside the apartments also has cameras, but they haven't been working for around five years. If they had been working, they had a direct line of sight to the garbage bins where Lauren's torso had been found dumped in the garbage. During the earlier search of McDaniel's apartment, police found condoms. However, when Stephen had been interviewed previously by Detective Patterson and Detective Chapman, Stephen said that he was a virgin and was saving himself for marriage. Stephen was being interviewed by another detective, uh, Carl Fletcher. He had been asking mundane questions of Stephen, 
Things like eHarmony, where Daniel had been visiting regularly but hadn't had much luck meeting anybody. He asked about Stephen's hair, to which Stephen replied, I just decided to grow it out. During the interview, Carl Fletcher asked Stephen about his condoms in the apartment. Stephen says that there were four condoms and Fletcher asked how he got them. Stephen said that he stole two of them, one from each of the two apartments belonging to Randy and David in the Barristers Hall block where he'd gone and entered without the resident's permission. And the others were from his sister where she was living at their home near Atlanta, Atlanta in Lilburn. There were questions about Stephen's grooming habits, the detectives asking him how often he bathed. Stephen answered that he would bathe a couple of times a week, ew, whenever he got sweaty, though he said he does use deodorant every day. They even asked what brand of toothpaste he uses. In case you're interested, Colgate. While the detectives were taking fingernail scrapings and collecting other evidence according to the search warrant, Detective Chapel asked Stephen, do you think we're going to find anything with all this evidence? To which Stephen said, I don't know. He then went on to say that anything they did find would be a surprise to him. At around 5 a.m., Stephen had been interviewed for hours by different detectives and now he had given a confession that he had gotten the condoms from the apartments in the complex without permission. He confessed that he had illegally entered the apartments somewhere between December 26, 2008 and January 31, 2009. Stephen was arrested and charged with two counts of burglary. He admitted that he had used a master key which gave him access to all of the apartments at Barristers Hall. A search warrant was issued and investigators were able to conduct another search of McDaniel's apartment. They collected up his knives, swords, firearms, along with other key pieces of evidence, including the master key for the apartments. Among the evidence was a flash drive that had belonged to Lauren and contained many personal photos. A pair of underwear, confirmed to have Lauren's DNA on them, was also found in Stephen's sock drawer. Packaging for a hacksaw was also found in the apartment, but no hacksaw. Further investigation took the detectives to the laundry room, which is where they found a large sheet stained with blood in one, inside one of the washing machines, and the hacksaw with human flesh and blood stains on it. DNA tests revealed that the blood was that of Lauren Giddings. The entire time, McDaniels maintained his innocence, but by the 2nd of August 2011, Police had enough evidence to charge him with Lauren Giddings' murder. They also charged him with seven counts of sexual exploitation of children, and he was jailed. He would remain there for three years until his trial. Prosecutors were going to seek the death penalty. However, during the three years leading up to his trial, the FBI, the FBI was also investigating and forensics had discovered deleted videos of Stephen's stalking activities along with a substantial amount of child pornography on his computer. Stalking videos? There are some snippets online. You can find them on YouTube. On the night that he murdered Lauren, McDaniels had attached his camera to a six foot long wooden stick and from beneath her second story apartment window, lifted the camera and was peering into the window of her living room. There were several videos that had been filmed between 9.30pm and 12.30am where he can see through the blinds and particular attention was paid to the burglar bar that was behind Lauren's front door. 
Forensic investigators also managed to recover photos from Stephen's camera, which was seized during the search of his apartment on June 30th. The photos were from inside Lauren's apartment 18 days before her murder. His computer also gave investigators a glimpse into his depraved mind and said that it was a clear indication of his obsession with Lauren. They were able to uncover internet history where Stephen had been looking at Lauren's social media. A lot. Multiple times a day. In April 2008, he had been looking at Lauren's Twitter account just moments after searching for nude photos of her on the internet. That same day, investigators said McDaniel had searched for three different variations of the phrase, molest sleeping girl. The FBI recorded that McDaniel spent multiple hours visiting pornography sites, dating websites, looking at advertisements for escorts, reading erotic fiction, and searching for nude photos of different celebrities. They said that he also spent a significant amount of time watching movies, searching websites about guns and sex toys, and interestingly, he had been writing blog posts on a website called Operator Chan under the screen name SOL. In May, McDaniel had typed Lauren Giddings into his search engine, and just a few days later, he was looking at her Amazon wish list. On June 7th, Stephen was, was searching for photos of Lauren on a photo sharing website, as well as photos of other unnamed women on the same website. A few hours later, he was looking at social media site LinkedIn at Lauren's profile, and then he Googled her name and looked at her Facebook. Hours before he murdered her, he once again searched for and looked at Lauren's Facebook page. The FBI said that apart from searching and looking at Lauren's social media and trying to find things out about her on the internet, he had also been searching for information related to his plans for murdering Lauren. They stated that as early as May 1st, Stephen had typed, quote, escape prison, end quote, into Google. The next day he searched for choked, unconscious, how long wake up. On June 24th, there were multiple searches from McDaniel's computer with search phrases for information about the door jamming burglar bar that Lauren had inside her apartment. Stephen had been pretending to be concerned for Lauren's well-being and searching for her with her friends, knowing the whole time where she was, and later on, just four hours before Lauren's torso had been found, he had made a search to find out how to erase his browsing history, obviously to cover his tracks and to hide his obsession with her. Just earlier, I mentioned about Stephen McDaniel writing blog posts under the SOL screen name. Apparently, this stands for Son of Liberty. He's used the Son of Liberty moniker a few times in the past and had written in um, some of these blog posts that he had been desensitized to violence and gore, mentioning movies where people were depicted as being disemboweled or dismembered. He would also talk about drugs like chloroform and how they could be used to subdue and incapacitate someone. In a chat room in 2010, SOL described his numbness to violence as part of a discussion about the 2007 movie, The Girl Next Door. You can check out IMDB for more information on that one. He wrote that the movie was one of the few films I've seen in the last decade that I can appreciate, direct quote. He also said that the film didn't make him cringe, quote, it was just, eh, driving nails through a man's testicles, cutting off a woman's nipples with a pair of scissors, severing fingers and making a necklace out of them. 
none of that does anything for me. It was good imagery, but it failed to resonate with me, end quote. He continued in his post, quote, Yes, I can watch a man disemboweling himself by crawling across a, a room while his intestines are clamped to a hook and not feel even the slightest disgust. There were many disturbing and graphic posts, including how he would kill religious demonstrators planning to attend the funeral of a fellow message boarder's brother, a fallen US soldier. He went into details about how he would slaughter the entire group and ensure that they were all dead, then sit on the ground with his gun several paces away and just rock back and forward on the ground, eyes wide and blank. Sound familiar? He goes on to write that he would remain in that state for at least a day. He wouldn't talk or communicate, he would just have a blank, unfocused stare, and that once a new stimulus is introduced, such as a family member or photo of his brother, he would shake his head and look around in a panicked manner and ask where he is and what's going on. Again, familiar? He did all of this after the torso of Lauren was found and whilst he was being interviewed by the police. He finishes his post by saying that he would, quote, keep the story consistent and put a sad look on, end quote. He also said that he may end up institutionalized for a while and they may take my guns and my ability to purchase more, but if I stuck to the story, it's doubtful I'd end up in prison, telling readers that this was all hypothetical, of course, his favorite kind of story. Stephen McDaniel, under the SOL screen name, also posted about his sister. The post had the title, My Waste of Space Sister. Glenda McDaniel, Stephen's mother, later confirmed some of the details that had been written in the post, including that his sister suffered from neurological disorders. Then came the straw that broke the camel's back. A photo that was recovered from Stephen's camera seized during the search on the apartment June 30th, 2011. Stephen had deleted the photo, but it was found. 18 days before the murder, Stephen had been in Lauren's apartment and he had snapped a photo of a certificate that Lauren had received from her law school. The photo was staged in a way to include some of Lauren's personal belongings. The Peeping Tom videos were also recovered and this compelled Stephen McDaniel to finally plead guilty to Lauren's murder on April 21st, 2014. Of course, it wasn't as easy as that. The Giddings family had filed a wrongful death suit against Stephen. He wanted them to drop that, and he also wanted the burglary and child exploitation, exploitation charges dropped against him. In return, he would give a full, truthful, and verifiable confession. Three years had passed, and the entire time, Stephen McDaniel had maintained that he was innocent, and he didn't know what had happened to Lauren Giddings. His law school classmate who had been brutally murdered and dismembered, and to date, only her torso had been found. After the FBI had found damning evidence against Stephen, including photos and videos from inside Lauren's apartment, finally, he agreed to a plea. Part of his plea was that he would write a confession for Lauren's family. The full one-page document is available on our Facebook and Patreon websites. In his confession, he wrote that he entered Lauren's apartment at around 4.30 a.m. using the master key that he had somehow gotten a hold of. He was dressed in black, wearing gloves and a mask. He says he went to Lauren's bedroom and stood there watching her sleep. As I took another step, the floor creaked and she awoke. She sat up in bed, 
saw me and said very calmly, get the fuck out. He then says, I leaped across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed to the floor and in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and lower body under the bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. He kept his hands around her throat and Lauren reached and was able to remove the mask from his head. She pulled it off and he says that Lauren said, Stephen, please stop. He continued to strangle her, however, until she stopped moving, saying that he stayed like that for as long as 15 minutes. He then went on to write that, I dragged her into the bathroom and placed her into the bathtub. Then I returned to my apartment. I remained in my apartment, mostly on my computer throughout the day, Sunday, June 26. Stephen tells of going back to Lauren's apartment with the hacksaw, which was recovered in the laundry room, to dismember Lauren, saying that he removed her head and her limbs, wrapping them in several black trash bags, all separately, and then took them to different dumpsters at the law school across the street from their apartments. McDaniel told his own lawyer that he sat there and cut off every single finger and bone and appendage on her hands and then threw them all down the toilet, flushing them one at a time. He wrapped her torso in another black bag and put them in the garbage on June 28th before daylight. He says that he cut up the mask and the gloves and also flushed them down his toilet. He then says that he cleaned her bathroom. Lauren's torso was wearing shorts when it was found and Stephen says that he didn't sexually assault Lauren before or after her death. In what can only be seen as an insult to Lauren's family, Stephen offered no explanation as to why he killed Lauren. He claimed that it was difficult to explain and he didn't understand it himself. He maintained that Lauren was his friend, although no one agreed. Lauren was kind to him because she knew no other way to be, but they were not friends. He gave an apology to her family and said that he didn't expect forgiveness and he didn't deserve it. You can read the confession, it's a lot of fluff, it was a last ditch effort to spare him from the death penalty, and it seems it worked. On April 21st, 2014, he was sentenced to life in prison, and on, although it's unlikely he'll ever come out of prison, he will actually be eligible for parole in 2041. Let's just hope that that doesn't happen. Any judge would be mad to give him freedom. But then, stranger things have happened. Just recently, in 2018, Stephen McDaniel tried to have his conviction overturned and to have the trial that he never had. He claimed that he was wronged by police and that his lawyers gave him ineffective counsel. Thankfully, that appeal was rejected and Stephen remains in prison a convicted murderer. The life of Lauren Giddings was taken by a sex-starved virgin, crazy and obsessed by a person who had shown him kindness. He violated her safe space and in that space, took her life after stalking and obsessing about her for months, maybe years. The murder was cold, calculated and heinous. Stephen McDaniel is exactly where he should be, and if there's any sense in this world, he will stay there until he draws his last disgusting breath. He's a threat to society and the fact that he was even having the option to get out of prison is, is absurd. He's evil and he should remain locked away in prison. In the 11 years since Lauren's murder, her sisters have been married and started families of their own. Her sister Caitlin says that her six nieces and nephews know who Aunt Lauren is. They spend time each year celebrating her birthday and they talk about her with love all the time. 
Though they haven't talked about how she died, the children do know that she has died. Caitlin did say that when the time comes for them to learn about how Aunt Lauren died, she has no doubt that it will be a difficult conversation about why and how there is evil in the world. The beautiful thing that I read in one of the notes, Lauren's other sister said that all they have is constant memories of Lauren and that they think very little of Stephen McDaniel. They don't think about her death or who killed her. They just think about and remember and continue to love her. This episode was originally published sooner than it was meant to. It was published in January of 2022. Um, this is part of the re-uploaded series because we had some issues with quality and episodes being deleted. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoy all of our stories. Please do give us a five-star rating if you do like it. It helps us to show up for other people to listen in. If you didn't like it, instead of giving a one star or writing something negative, please do get in touch and have a chat with me. I'm always open to communication. Rating our show helps to get the word out to others and it gets us appearing on lists and getting recommended. So, if you'd like to stop by our website, it's veritastruecrime.com. You can click on the contact us button and we'll have a chat. I love to banter. If you'd like to co-host the show, maybe get in touch with me too. I'd love it if you'd also stop by and like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Veritas Crime. Or maybe you'd like to check out our Patreon page and start getting some exclusive content for very little every month. It doesn't help. It, it helps us to get episodes out to you and also it will make you part of the show. We're work working on some live streams and more, and all of the links are on our website. I hope that you've enjoyed this special Stalking Awareness Month episode as part of the re-upload series. Join me next time for Veritas True Crime. Remember, the truth is mighty, and it will prevail. Until next time, my friends.